0: Good morning, good morning children, off you go, off you go as you go to be taught God's word and as they do just want to uh, thank those of you again that were here yesterday, Uh, thanks we had a great turnout to clean this place up and I think all of us that were here would agree it needed cleaning up, Um, so we're thankful for that. And I also just want to say brief, briefly, uh, just to agree with what Joey was praying about in relation to the events that are occurring a couple hours south of us, um, uh, racism has no welcome in the gospel. Um, and so it is, racism has no welcome here. Um, my historical hero, Wilberforce, said that you can choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. And so uh, he said that in the face of fighting the African slave trade, So. So we should be aware of these things. And as Christians push back light into the darkness, I'm mindful, even as our brothers and sisters are over in the Middle East right now, they're ministering to a people that have been the recipient of racism themselves. Back in the 90s, they were attempted to be exterminated. Why? Because they were Kurds. That's it. And so uh, we have a lot to think about. Wilberforce also talked about the fact that uh, when a world with so much needs to be met, we ought not ever be bored. So you should read him. He's very helpful. Let me pray for us as we get uh, started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We pray that as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, that our hearts and our minds would be probed and that we would look to you and find hope that we would get unstuck, that we would wait on you. Amen. Well, in uh, 1993, um, there's a movie by the name of Groundhog Day. Maybe some of you have seen it, came out. It's a movie about a guy that wakes up on February the 2nd and uh, no matter what he does that day, the next day when he wakes up, it's always February the 2nd. All the events sort of just replay themselves over and over again. And so at first he kind of enjoys the redundancy because he sees that no matter what happens, no matter what he does, all the same things just happen the next day. So he kind of enjoys it and so he gets drunk and he uh, has one night stands and he just kind of acts a fool generally. Uh, But eventually... This uh, sort of cycle continues so much so that he begins to kind of go in a downward trend and begins to get depressed because of this loop that he can't, seems, can't seem to get himself out of. So I wonder if you've ever felt that way yourself. You're sort of in a loop that you're stuck in, that you can't get out, and you too find yourself on the brink of despair or difficulty that you don't, because of those bad habits or sin patterns, you're just stuck. Well, you should know, friend, that you're not alone if that describes you. My guess is you're probably sitting close to someone that has similar struggles this morning. Uh, and you should also know that you're not alone insofar as it relates to the Bible. The Bible is uh, strewn f- uh, with plenty and plenty of stories of people that struggled and were stuck in a kind of sin pattern. So we can think about Abraham, who constantly lied w- about his wife. We can think about Israel, that once they were released from uh, their slavery in Egypt, they constantly were going on and on and on about idolatry. And so we can also think about people like Peter that told the Lord Jesus that he would not fail, that he wouldn't lie, he would never leave Jesus. And of course, that very night, three times, he lies. And how could we forget Paul himself in Romans chapter 7, who said, the things that I want to do, I cannot do. And the things that I do do, I don't want to do. And so we know the scriptures are clear about those that are stuck in habitual sins. Reminds me of a, a guy that picks up a Bible uh, because he hasn't read it most of his life. He, he was grown up in the church. He, there was a time that he read the Bible, but he hadn't read it in quite some time. He picks it up to read it. And as he's reading the Bible, he comes in contact with all those stories that I just mentioned about Abraham and these kind of guys that are really messed up. And he says to another Christian friend, I don't know that I remembered that the Bible is so full of people that were so messed up. And the Christian brother said back to him, that's the whole point. As you would hope And one that's not messed up. So if you're here this morning consistently losing the battle against sin and temptation. Then you're going to want to pay close attention to the saints prayer there in Psalm 130. And what we're going to see in that Psalm is that we must cry out in desperation to the Lord. We must actively wait upon him as a watchman. More than watchmen wait for the morning. That's what we're going to find in the text this morning. We've been out, we've been in Philippians for six months. We're kind of uh, spending about a month or so in Psalms and Proverbs. And Psalms, you should know, since we've spent so much time in the New Testament, Psalms are waiting for the coming of Christ. Uh, they are said to be Old Testament wisdom literature. They're written at various historical points by different peoples over the span of years. It's sort of, you could understand them as kind of life in the kingdom. That's what Psalms is like. Life in the kingdom. So let me read. Psalm 130 for us. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the first point we see, kind of, Taking a snapshot on these first four verses, the first thing we see there is to cry out in desperation to the Lord. Cry out in desperation to the Lord. Now, it's not hard to see the desperation of the psalmist there in this passage. The psalmist understands himself to be in the depths. We could say the darkness. And they notice they don't just talk to the Lord. Notice they cry to the Lord. This situation seems to have been going on for a while since they don't just plea to the Lord, but we find them They have pleas to the Lord. And also with the emphasis on waiting for the Lord, we can see that this desperation hasn't had any kind of quick fixes. This has been going on for a while. The situation we find here is desperate. It's enduring. And so there are cries, there are pleas in the depths of darkness, and the night hasn't lifted. They wait and they wait and they wait for light to come. Ever felt like that? If you haven't, you will. Now, it's important that we see here in this passage that the cause of the long desperation is not primarily circumstantial. It's volitional. It's not primarily circumstantial, but volitional. In other words, the psalmist is stuck in sin, sin that he can't seem to get himself out of. So notice the emphasis there in verse three on iniquities. That would be sin, the need for forgiveness in verse four. The need for redemption in verse seven and the conclusion of the Lord redeeming Israel from iniquities or sin there in verse eight. So the situation here is not as though someone lost their job or they got bad news from the doctor about cancer. Again, it's not primarily circumstantial. It's volitional. Although I do think we can make some conclusions, draw some conclusions about circumstances we may find ourselves in. But here the psalmist is in the depths because they are stuck in their sin. They seem to have made a series of poor choices that have left them in a hole of darkness. And they're surrounded by it. They're stuck in it. They're stuck in their sin. And they've been there for a while, crying out to the Lord, looking up to the top of the hole, begging for the Lord to come in and to rescue them, to get them out of this darkness that they've gotten themselves into, knowing that they won't be uh, they don't deserve to be lifted out of there, but still hoping in the Lord that they would, in fact. We see here, if God were to hold them to account as to all that got them there in the first place, we see that the psalmist would agree that they couldn't stand. They should stay down in that hole. That's what's what's behind that language there in verse 3. If God kept a record of iniquities, who could stand? Answer? No one. None of us. But especially this person here. Thus the call for mercy. Mercy is undeserved ability. So, in other words... Uh, It's asking for help, help that you cannot perform on your own. And not only that, it's help that you don't deserve. And so I wonder this morning, as you think about this passage, what habitual sins do you find yourself in? What habitual sins do you find yourself in? Could be racism. You find yourself stuck in that. An obvious one would be lust, sexual immorality. Porn. Porn. There are men and women that are stuck or addicted to porn or they are stuck in having their thoughts wander over and over again to impure places. There are those who are stuck in drug or alcohol addiction. But those are the easy ones. Others are stuck in the patterns of lying and deceit. Still others are stuck in the pattern of gossiping about others, consistently speaking poorly about others behind their backs. Others are stuck in a lack of gratitude, They're kind of marked by a lack of thankfulness. They're kind of stuck in the hole of bitterness and they kind of see the whole world that way. Still others are stuck in a lack of forgiveness. Maybe they've been sinned against so many times they can't bring themselves to forgive others. And especially that person that sinned against them. No amount of sermons or maybe Bible reading seem to be able to lift them up to forgive others as they have been forgiven. Still others, I think, are there are others that struggle with a love for this world. They're stuck in the pattern of loving this world as is evidenced by their expenses. They keep buying and buying to try to fit in and to find joy or they find value or acceptance from others more than they find their value or their acceptance by God himself. Their image in the eyes of their fellow man define them more than who they are in Christ Jesus. So they keep buying and they keep performing in order to measure up. And they just can't seem to get out of the loop of that. There are still others that are stuck in the patterns of pride or arrogance or self-righteousness. That is, they're so aware of the sin of others and the innocence of themselves, and they're just stuck in that. They fail to consistently see the grace that they need for forgiveness. They're stuck in that kind of same self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees in the New Testament. And then there are those that are stuck in sinful anxiety. They've read books about contentment. They know they should trust the Lord. But they are anxious about everything and therefore they lack the peace that transcends understanding. I'm sure there's other sins that we could mention that those of us struggle with and are kind of stuck inside. I know for me as I was evaluating this this week, week, going through this sermon, thinking about this passage, I know that my joy can be dictated by how this church is going. That's not good. That's a pattern that's not good, that needs to be worked out of. And I work on it, I pray about it, but sometimes I get stuck in it. All of us, or many of us at least, struggle or stuck in sin many of us are stuck in sin and when i say us i'm talking about christians i'm not talking about non-christians so if you're not a christian here this morning first of all welcome second of all know that the person you're sitting next to if they're a christian you should know they probably struggle with sin in some way shape or form thus the prayers for confession the prayers of confession this morning so we have every reason to believe that the psalmist here in psalm 130 is in the family of god they're part of the family of god And so you should know, friend, if you're here this morning wondering what Christianity is like, we're not perfect people. The difference between the world and the church is not the difference between people who are good and bad. We're all bad, myself included. You should know that about me. And so the difference between the world and the church is that the church should know it's bad, like the psalmist. And it cries out for mercy. There's the difference in Christianity. The world is oftentimes like Adam. They don't take responsibility for their sin or they blame it on something or someone else if they recognize it at all. But we as Christians, we take responsibility for our sin patterns and we trust God to change us, not ourselves. And so the church then is not an Olympic team that sort of sort of achieved some kind of religious success. Not at all. We are a hospital for sinners that know that they're sick. And that's why we come here every Sunday to be reminded Of where we find our answers, where we find healing. So the motto of the church of Jesus Christ is like what we read on the plaque of the Statue of Liberty. You ever read it? It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuge of your teeming shore. Send these homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Every member of this church knows something about that. As does the psalmist here in this passage. We all know that we are, or maybe were, in the depths. Our sins stand as a record against us. We are debtors to God. We cannot pay the ransom. We are tired. We are poor. We are yearning to breathe free from our sin. That's us. We are homeless. We are tossed about. But we have found a home in Christ. He was and is the golden door that we walk through to find grace for forgiveness. I said, friend, maybe you've always understood Christianity to be like all the other religions of the world where you have to kind of perform enough to enter the golden door of the gospel or the golden door of heaven. Well, you should know that's not Christianity. Or maybe you can identify with the habitual sin that has covered you up so badly that you think that God would never, never want you. Well, if that's you, take a look down there at that psalm again. Psalm 130. All of us who are in Christ know the voice of this pilgrim. All of us who are stuck, who are in Christ and stuck in our sin, we know what it is to be in the depths, to be stuck in our sin. The difference in us is seen in this author, what he's talking about, what he's praying about. The difference is we do not hope in ourselves to be lifted out of the darkness. We plead with God for mercy to lift us out. That's right. The one that we sinned against The one that we sinned against is the one that we go to to plead in order to get us out of our sin patterns. And we know that he will get us out. We know that he will hear our prayers and he will get us out. We know that he will hear our prayers because he always has. He always has. That's the whole story of the Bible. Turn to almost every single page in the Old Testament and you will read the same story over and over again. God loving his people. His people forgetting about that love, making poor choices, kindling the anger of the Lord. And yet they then call out to God in the midst of that sort of judgment. And though he rightfully is angry, he still loves them in their sin and sends them a deliverer. That's almost on every page of the Old Testament. So I've been reading personally through uh, the book of Judges in my devotional times. And I read this passage. I'll give you an example of this idea right here. I was reading this this week. Judges 3, 7 to 9. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, that be false gods. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, as well as it should be, right? And he sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. I'm not even going to try that. (laughs) And the people of Israel served that king eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Isn't that amazing? Kindle the anger of God. Things go bad as a result of this. They call out to God. God rightfully should say, I'm angry at you. I'm not seeing any help. And yet he hears their cries and he sends a deliverer. That's the God of the Bible. The psalmist knows this. He knows that the Lord is like this, and so in his sin, knowing his guilt, he doesn't stay away from God. He goes to God and pleads for mercy, and he believes he's going to get heard. He asks for Him to hear him. He believes he's going to get heard. He doesn't deserve to be lifted up, nor is he able to lift himself up. And he goes to the one he sinned against because he knows God is able, and His record towards sinners is clear. He's merciful. He's merciful. He is willing and he is able to give undeserved ability to those who are stuck in the darkness of their sins. And he knows, the psalmist does here, that God can and will hear his cries, will lift him up. So I wonder, do you? Do you know that about God? That he's a merciful God, that he'll hear your prayers, that he can, he's willing, he's able to lift you up. Do you know that? Not just right here, I'm talking here. Do you know that? you know God like the psalmist does or friend are you keeping yourself from God as a result of your sin learn from the psalmist here go to God in your desperation and don't just don't just call out to him learn from the psalmist cry out to him that is share with him your desperation Cry out to Him. Don't just plead with Him even once like we see here in the second verse. Plead with Him to hear you over and over and over and over and over again until you're delivered. It took a lot of time to get where you are, friend, in that habitual sin. Whatever it is, it took you a lot of time to get there. It's probably going to take a lot of time to get out. And so, you have to not only go to him and cry out you have to plead with him over and over again to grant you mercy to pull you up out of the darkness and you have to believe that he will hear you and hear your cries and he will grant you forgiveness that's where he goes next in verse four he cries for mercy and he knows that he could never stand in the face of the holiness of god that's verse three and so he rehearses the good news that the god that we sinned against is also the god that is willing and able to give forgiveness hallelujah right so now we're going to talk about forgiveness in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to notice what he wants to rise up out of of forgiveness. Did you catch it there in verse 4? He wants forgiveness to come that something would come. Look at it in verse 4. Forgiveness would come that fear would then come. Now that's a little strange, isn't it? A little odd. If God should hold our sins against us, we could never stand. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's what he wants to have happen. So the psalmist prays that forgiveness would come so that fear would come. I doubt any of us would have prayed that. Anybody prayed that this week? And yet that's the model. We cry out, we plead over and over, knowing God is a God of forgiveness, asking him for forgiveness so that fear would come. Why? Why would he want fear to come? Why would he want fear to rise up out of forgiveness? Well, the answer is because habitual sin is evidence of a lack of fear. That's why. I'll give you an example of this. So if someone can't keep themselves from going into the room, hiding in the darkness, accessing porn, you think you can't get out of it. You're just sort of stuck in that. And you say, I'm in too deep. I can't stop it immediately. And there's a sense in which that's true. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I have a guess. I bet I know one way that I can immediately stop you. When you're back in the room, by yourself, in the dark, watching that junk. There's one way I could stop you immediately. Is in that, in that room, back, or removed from everybody else, an army ranger, bolts through the door all right flashlights bolting big old rifle flashing pointed at him he flicks the lights on and points it straight at you you're gonna stop immediately aren't you yeah of course you are why fear you've been exposed and you're scared about this thing that walked through the door you were woken by fear and it stopped you and so the psalmist understands that. So should we. The psalmist understands that habitual sin is habitual because there is a lack of fear of the Lord. And by fear, I mean awe, reverence, greatness, bigness, holiness. Think about Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah walks in, the presence; he sees the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And his response immediately is, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. That. That's fear. That's awe. God is so great. And we're in habitual sin because we don't see that. Not regularly, anyway. We lose sight of the fact that God is holy, that he is great, that he is above all things, and he rightfully should knock us off our feet and cast us into judgment. In other words, friends, we don't live what's called Coram Deo. We don't live before the face of God. We don't live that way before the face of God. We lack oftentimes. I know I do lack the fear of God, and yet Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. Exodus twenty twenty, right after the Ten Commandments, one of the first things it said, God has come to test you that fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. Habitual sin is habitual because it lacks a fear of the Lord. He prays here that forgiveness would come so that fear would come because he knows that he lacks it he loves his sin more than he fears god and so he cries out he pleads with god to grant mercy for forgiveness so that fear of the lord would come and he would be released from the depths of his sin See, many of us want forgiveness but i wonder if we want it for the right reasons the psalmist wants forgiveness that he would worship God. He doesn't want forgiveness just for forgiveness sake. He doesn't want forgiveness just to lose the feeling of guilt. He wants forgiveness so that he might behold the greatness of the glory of God and all of His majesty. He understands that living before the face of God is freedom to worship God and live in light of God. He doesn't want to use God in his forgiveness just so he can kind of get out of his rut and feel better about himself. No. As we will see in a moment, he wants forgiveness so that fear, so that awe of God might rise up. And then, then once that forgiveness comes and then the fear comes, the awe comes, then he would then enjoy the steadfast love of the Lord. Put off the sin, he's praying. Put on Sight of God, holiness of God, fear, awe of God. And then as that comes, you then enjoy the steadfast love of the Lord. And so in your fight against habitual sin, are you pleading with God? Are you crying out to God? Are you begging him for mercy? And are you wanting forgiveness so that fear would rise? Fear of the Lord. Do you ask him? Do you plead with him? Do you cry out to him to grant you forgiveness so that you might be awoken to stop sinning and to start worshiping the greatness of the glory of God? Or are you focus more on just that one side? Just get me out of this, God. Psalm shows us that it has to lead to something better, not just to get out of something, but to lead to something better. That's how it's going to end, brother or sister. That's how it's going to end. You need more than warnings and good habits. You need the fear of God in your life. And once you have it, that will lead you to actively wait upon him in your struggle. Cry out in desperation to the Lord. That's what we've seen. Pray that you would know a forgiveness that leads to fear, a good fear, fear of the Lord. And then, secondly, wait upon the Lord for plentiful redemption. Cry out in desperation to the Lord. And then, secondly, wait upon the Lord for plentiful redemption. That's verses 5 to 8. You can see how the psalmist moves from forgiveness that leads to fear into waiting on the Lord there in the next couple of verses. Pretty easy to see. In other words, waiting for the Lord here means to be looking for something to come about. It's expectant, as it were. It's expectant. He's active in his waiting to be delivered from the depths. He is not passive. So don't read waiting here as passive. He is not passive. Waiting, waiting is not passive. It is active. He did not offer up a prayer to have some regret about his sin pass it over to God, and then sort of go about life and the rest of the way that he always does. And call that waiting. That's not what's happening. He's pleading over and over again, and from that forgiveness, fear would rise up. He's keeping his eye then on the horizon, waiting for morning to come, waiting for light to come. So you see the redundancy there of the more than watchman wait for the morning? There's no punctuation in the Hebrew language. So that, think of that the redundancy like an exclamation mark. He sang it numerous times to emphasize it more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. He is not passive. He is not doubting more than watchmen wait for the morning. He waits for relief, wait for God to bring in light. He believes he trusts. He actively waits for the Lord to come. He is hopeful for any glimpse of light. He does not need the whole sun to come up. He just needs just that maybe just a little bit of flicker of light there would encourage him to keep going, to trust God in the midst of this. Waiting on the Lord. Now, I've read a lot of soldiers' accounts um, about being on post at night during a war. It's interesting to read these guys. As you might expect, it's pretty nerve-wracking to be on post during a war at night. I read one account of a particular soldier that is—he's uh, there in the night. He knows the enemy is close. And as he's standing there on the post, he looks out in the darkness in the night, sees in the darkness, and he sees the enemy lying right in front of him, still. And he calls out he, the bad kind of fear or, the, or the, the kind of realistic fear, right? The fight or flight kind of fear rises up in him. And he calls out and says, identify yourself. And the soldier, the enemy, doesn't say a word. And he just remains still there. And, of course, the soldiers. You know, and he begins to kind of move. He's got a bayonet on the end, and he moves forward towards that, and he begins to take his bayonet and thrust it into this soldier that's lying waiting, his enemy waiting to take him, when he finds out, it's a tree stump. That's what the darkness is like. We can't see good. We get stuck. What we need, what that soldier needed, is the sun to come up so we could see that it was a tree stump. That it had no claim on him. The fight against him. That he had a better, better hope. We need the light to shine in. You long for morning to see. That's what watchmen do in the night. They want the light to come because they want light to come. And that light would then allow them to see more clearly. That they would be more hopeful. That they would be more glad because the light has overcome the darkness. And this is what the psalmist is praying for. I wait for the Lord, my soul. Note the depth of his hope. The depth. It's not just sort of here. I kind of like this to kind of change, God. My soul, my soul waits for the Lord, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the m- morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. See, he's in the depths, but he doesn't give up hope actively waits down to the level of his soul. He stares at the horizon, and he believes light is on its way. It's coming. And he has experienced this personally, and so therefore, he's calling on Israel to know this corporately. So we've got the example there of him experiencing this sort of individual trouble, and he then calls out of the midst of this to call the whole nation of Israel to understand this, the people of God to understand this. And so God, friends, God's people are not islands. God's people are always connected to the continent of the saints. So that as people are struggling and having difficulty and waiting, stuck in sin, that others may see this, help them, but they too might have hope as they watch other people walk through this. And that's what he's doing. He's calling for his own, uh, the people of God in Israel to understand this as well. But this idea of waiting is hard for us, isn't it? We 21st century Western peoples, we do not like waiting. Our entire society is built on instant gratification. An article in the Boston Globe says that, quote, retailers are jumping into same day delivery services. Smartphone apps eliminate the wait for a cab, a date or a table at a hot restaurant. Movies and TV shows begin streaming in seconds. But experts caution that instant gratification comes at a price. It makes us less patient. Unquote. See, so we are building an entire society on the principle that individual preferences should not only come, but they should come quickly. And if they don't, we're not happy and we move on. We lack patience because there's no room for waiting. And the psalmist here is emphasized waiting, waiting. The psalmist teaches us that waiting is required in the school of redemption. And so, friends, is it any wonder today that so many people try Jesus and his church and then walk away unsatisfied? I am 42 years old. I've walked with Jesus now for about 21 years. That's older than some of you have been alive in this room. And in my 42 years, in particular in the 21 years that I've followed Jesus, there's one thing I've learned about the Christian life, and that is that things do not come quick and they do not come easy. They never have. We could make that sort of a principle about life, but in particular about the Christian faith. They don't come quick and they don't come easy. Jesus, friends, builds his people like cathedrals. They're beautiful edifices but they take a lot of time and precision to build. Now to be clear, the work of justification is instantaneous. You turn, you trust in Jesus, in Christ you are clean. But then there's, after justification, there is sanctification. And that's the thing that takes time. It takes time. The work of justification is instantaneous, but the work of sanctification is often slow. It's, especially slow if we've made successive choices to grieve the Spirit and live in the darkness. And so if you are going to get out of the depths, brother, sister, you are going to have to consistently cry out to the Lord and wait upon Him to slowly, carefully, but lovingly put put you in the furnace so that as the heat comes on you, He can skim up the dross, get rid of it, that you might shine all the more bright. That's how the work of sanctification goes so I wish I could give you a few quick and easy steps towards getting out of your darkness but I can't sanctification uh, in sanctification the Lord just oftentimes does not work that way I love telling people this do you when you slow down and think about the scriptures right there God promises a deliverer in Genesis 3:16 it takes thousands of years for Jesus to show up right think about the nation of Uh, Israel is sent off into slavery and they're there for 420 years. Back up on that. Abraham is promised to be the father of many nations and he marries a wife and doesn't have a kid for not one, not ten, not twenty, twenty-five years before Isaac comes. And then Isaac comes and he marries another woman that's also having trouble getting pregnant and 23 years goes by before Jacob and Esau finally come. And here we are, Christ has secured salvation. He has resurrected and ascended 2,000 years. Still waiting. God ain't in any hurry. And yet we so often are. Some of you are in deep. You've been there for a while. But brother, sister, cry out to the Lord. Wait upon Him. Believe that He has come, that He will come again. And believe that more than watchmen wait for the morning. Wait on the Lord. Stare at that horizon. That is to say, stare at Jesus. Stare at His Word. Place your hope in that Word. In the promises of God. That's the Word. He has come and He will come again. And as you wait, let me remind you of the one of whom you wait upon. Verse 7. The Lord, the one we wait upon, with Him is steadfast love. His love is patient. His love is kind. His love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The steadfast love of the Lord never fails. And it never ends. It never ends. His love is constant. His love is abiding. See, while our love fails, His love never fails. So just because your love fails doesn't mean that His love fails. Remember, beloved, He was the one that first loved you. You didn't first love Him he's never stopped loving you beloved never oh well nathan like surely when i was down there in the depths or maybe i am that he didn't love me as much now no that's not true his love is constant it's steadfast we never earned his love in the first place so you can't unearn his love It's steadfast, just as you have trusted him the first time to save you. Trust him today. Trust him tomorrow. Trust him the next day. Trust him a year from now to pull you up out of that pit and onto the heights of his everlasting love. He is willing and he is able because with him is steadfast love. Wait upon the steadfast love of the Lord because with him in that love is all that he is. You get that love. His love is better than life. Wait upon the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what comes when he comes. That's what you're staring at in the darkness, waiting for it to come. And secondly, verse seven. Not only is steadfast love with the Lord, by the way, you could go back into verse four and see that forgiveness is with the Lord. So we got three things that are with the Lord, with forgiveness, with steadfast love. And then verse seven, so is plentiful redemption. We don't use the word plentiful much, do we? It's a good word. Full of plenty. His redemption lacks nothing. His love is steadfast, unending, never fails, and His redemption is unending because it's plentiful. There is plenty of redemption to go around for all of we weary sinners who are in the depths crying out to Him. We wait upon Him because with Him is forgiveness, with Him is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And if you ever doubt that, take a look back at the cross of Christ. Be reminded of the Lord's forgiveness. Be reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord. And be reminded of the Lord's redemption. See what the psalmist says there in verse 8. Look at verse 8. That the Lord will do for Israel. Future tense. We look back and see that he has done. In Christ on the cross. It is accomplished. That plentiful redemption was accomplished on the cross. So the psalmist waits for the cross. Where love and mercy meet. Where forgiveness can be granted to sinners who are stuck. And what He looked forward to, we look back to. Redemption means, friends, to buy back, to purchase. So we were enslaved to our sin. We were in the pit with no way out. Mercy came in the form of God's Son. He took our place. He went to the depths. He became sin for us. He pleaded for His Father's mercy on us. And because of His sacrifice on the cross, He is able to forgive sinners so that they might once again fear or worship, enjoy God. Christ became stuck so that we wouldn't have to be. So when you think about it that way, friends, if every passage is pointing to Christ, we could even say Christ became Psalm 130 for us. The sin that we are stuck in and so often haunted by and even guilted by is paid for. Done. In Christ, our sin is paid for, forgiven so that fear, so that worship may rise up in our souls and we may learn to live in the light again. So that we so that so that we actively wait for the Lord to lift us up out of the depths, remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, this plentiful redemption. We constantly rehearse our forgiveness, placing our hope in the word that declares us free, forgiven and forever loved. And that's not even all. There's even more to it than that. We not only wait by rehearsing our past redemption in Christ by looking at the cross. We also wait by rehearsing our future redemption. That's how much plentiful redemption there is. It's even more. There's even more to come. I said a moment ago that what the psalmist looked for, we look back to in the cross. But there's an element of redemption that we still rate upon, right? It's a redemption that will be the consummation that comes with the everlasting glorification. Paul writes about it in Romans 8. He says to the Christians, and he says that, quote, we ourselves, this is writing to Christians, we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, note the language, as we, what? Wait. There it is again. And it's not just any kind of waiting. It's active waiting. Wait eagerly for adoption as sons what do you mean by that paul here it is the redemption of our bodies he goes on to say in verse 25 again we wait for it with patience i don't know if i'm with you on that one paul I'm not real patient about that redemption much i want it to be here now right the redemption of our bodies the returning of christ where he will make all things right again christ secured salvation on the cross for sinners that believe, that trust in Him, that paid for that. He rose on the third day, and those that trust Him can be born again, have new life, and then have a new life that allows them to eventually look forward to a day in which their whole bodies will rise and everything will be redeemed. The resurrection of Christ was said to be the first fruits, and one day all those in Christ will be the final fruits. Our bodies will be redeemed, glorified, and with it will come heaven on earth. We will no longer ever get stuck. Our faith will be sight and there will be no more depths forever. And so for you, Christian, who are in the depths, cry out to the Lord continually. Ask him for forgiveness that fear would rise. Wait upon him for plentiful redemption. Rehearse the gospel day in and day out and actively wait for the return of Christ where you will never have to struggle with that thing you're thinking about right now. In heaven, you will never have to struggle with it again. And that day is coming. Wait for the Lord by looking back at the cross. Wait for the Lord by looking forward to heaven. That's redemption. That's plentiful redemption. This is the word. This gospel. This is the word we place our hope in that the psalmist talks about. And so as you do this, beloved. As you do this, the Lord is going to pull you up into the light. Bathe you in the glow of his steadfast love and plentiful redemption. And soon enough, brother, sister. Soon enough, you'll become what you already are in Jesus. Totally, totally. That's a day worth looking forward to. You'll notice at the beginning of the psalm, it's called a song of ascents. Ascent means rising. So it started in the depths and by the time it gets to the end, it's at the top. And so, brother, sister, I know that it's been hard. I know that you feel like you're in the depths. Keep your eyes on Christ. Know that you're surrounded by a bunch of broken people too. We're going to get home. We keep our eyes on Christ. We'll get there. We will be so glad when we enjoy the steadfast love of God. when We enjoy His plentiful redemption. And we will agree with Him on that day. It is plentiful redemption. And it was worth us not being passive about it. It's worth keeping our eyes on the horizon and not giving up. Thanks be to God that he's the kind of God that invites this. That he doesn't keep us away from himself when we're stuck in sin. That he saved broken people like me and like you. That's what he's like. Hope in him. Wait upon him. Cry to him. And we will be home. And he will never let go of us. Let's pray to him. How glad we are, Father, to know what this psalmist wrote hundreds of years before the coming of Christ when he wrote, He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. He did it! You've done it. And I love that word, all, Father. Thank You for the word all. Not for some of our iniquities, all of our iniquities. Thank You. And God, teach us to wait. We're so poor at waiting. We do lack patience. That's one of the sins we're probably stuck in. So teach us to wait as the psalmist does. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. May we hope in you. You're good. Your love is steadfast. Your redemption is full. And we look forward to enjoying it forever. Help us out. We pray in Christ's name.